Welcome to another episode of ERG Power Talk. I'm your host, Joe Santana. That clip you were listening to is from a song titled A Change Is Gonna Come, written and performed by the iconic Sam Cooke. It was written as a protest supporting the civil rights movement in the United States, and many of the lyrics in this beautiful, heartfelt song were inspired by an incident where Cook and his friends were arrested for disturbing the peace after being denied a room in a motel in Louisiana. Sadly, this song was released as a single in 1964, just a few months after Cook was shot by a motel owner. He was only 33 years old. This sad part of Sam Cooke's story is one that you won't find in any of our history books, despite the fact that Sam was such an important figure in American music. It was Sam's magical voice, together with another great artist, Ray Charles, that brought us soul. If Ray was the father, then Sam was the king of soul. And this story about Sam is not the only part of our history as a country that's been hidden. The fact is that much of the history we learn today is a revision designed to present the preferred picture of the world as opposed to preserving a record of facts. And countries aren't the only ones who do this. Communities, associations, and corporate organizations do it all the time as well. As people who desire to create a more inclusive society within our organizations and communities, it's important that we help to set that record straight. Why? Because our understanding of history directly influences and shapes our perception of the world, our beliefs, our ideas. And because of this, a more accurate telling of history is at the very foundation for creating a society where people in a company and in a country can move closer closer together towards honoring, respecting, and hearing each other as equal members of the human family. So that's our topic for today. And to help us on this historical journey of discovery, I've got a special guest who is especially suited to this task. But before I introduce him, let's take a moment to revisit our mission and acknowledge our sponsors. This is ERG Power Talk, and I'm your host, Joe Santana. The purpose of ERG Power Talk is to provide a forum for the exchange of great ideas and inspiration for ERG leaders, as well as others who are interested in supporting ERGs. No more waiting until the next conference and praying that you have the budget to travel to the conference in order to find great ideas and stimulation toward action. Just subscribe and listen at your convenience. Before we begin, a quick note of thanks to our supporters and sponsors, Bear Ringer Ingelheim, CVS Health, Dollar General, Freighter Health and Wisconsin Medical College, Mass Mutual, McCormick, Johnson Controls, Pitney Bowes, Daimler Trucks North America, and Sony Pictures Entertainment. Now, let's go straight to the program. My guest today is an author actor and public speaker with an education in history. He recently wrote a book about life in the early 20th century in the Deep South that chronicles the story of a young black girl growing up in the exploitation and brutality of that region in that era and the battle that she fought 
to make a life for herself. I'm Sylvester Boyd, and I'm the author of a book called The Road to Money. Sylvester, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Sylvester, tell us a little bit about your broad background. Sure. I'm an actor. I've been on a major TV program, Chicago Fire, Chicago PD. I'm a background actor, and I've acted with some of the biggest actresses and actors in Hollywood, from Regina King to Terrence Howard, Academy Award winners. And basically, I've been a person that has had many lifetimes. I'm in my 70s, but uh, when I look back, uh, I've done quite a bit. I've been a teacher in the Chicago public school system. I'm, I'm a historian. I've traveled the world from Denmark all the way to Honolulu and a lot of places in between. And I've been a business owner for 20 years. So I've done some business with some of the major corporations, Coors Beer, McDonald's Corporation. I know a little bit about the business world. I know a little bit about the world itself. Being a historian, I know a little bit about the history of the world. And I've got other things I've done. I was one of the first African-Americans crew chiefs at American Airlines. And I was in charge of loading aircraft. The first 747 that came in O'Hare Field in Chicago, I was in charge of loading that aircraft. So I've seen a lot of history. I've done a lot of things. And life has been very interesting up yeah, until but- now. I hope, to, <laughs> I hope to continue that. Yeah. For our listeners who can't see you, I have to say that you are one of the youngest looking 77-year-olds that I've ever seen. So I'm not sure if it's due to genetics or a life well lived, as it sounds like you've had, but that energy of youth is still clearly there. So Sylvester, what inspired you to write your book, The Road to Money? Something very sad it was the death of my aunt, who the, the book is based on. And she was quite a dynamic person. And I got a lot of my characteristics from her. She was my second mother. She went from the cotton fields of Mississippi to a millionaire in her lifetime. And she traveled the world at the age of 79. She went to Singapore, Manila, and stood on the Great Wall of China. Remember, she came from the cotton fields of Mississippi in the South. She was born in the year 1917. My book starts in the year 1925 when she was eight years old. And it takes place in the South. And you see the great migration from the South to the North of African-Americans. The second book, I'm on my third book now, by the way. Uh, the second book encompasses World War II. And she was really Rosie the Riveter in World War II. Got a good paying job building uh airplanes out at the the Ford plant here. Well, it was Chrysler at the time. And so her life is really America. Yes. And you just don't present cold facts. Your book actually provides a lot of background context that helps the reader appreciate that era. I don't want to give you just the big stories. I want to give you the little day-to-day details. In my book, I try to encompass the music of the time, the, the Jew joint down in the South, the train ride where you couldn't sit next to a white person. And then when she went across the the Mississippi River, a white lady sat next to her and she almost fainted because that was not acceptable in the South. So you see the nuances uh, of, of, of racism. Yeah. One of the things that I liked about your book is that while you do see the nuances of racism and sometimes even overt racism, it's not a one-dimensional lens. It wasn't all bad. They had, they had picnics, big picnics down south. And all this is based on stories told to me by my grandmother, my aunt, and my family members, who, by the way, from Money, Mississippi, the road for money comes from the, the title of the book. is not financial money. It's the name of the town. And in that town, Emmett Till, I don't know how many people uh, realize this, uh, know this, but Emmett Till was killed there. 
They said he whistled at a white woman. He was thrown in the Tallahatchie River, which flows through money, Mississippi. And that started the civil rights movement before Martin Luther King, before Rosa Parks. Very intricately connected with history because my folks came from the town that kind of sparked the modern civil rights movement. Yeah, you are connected to history. And I also learned that you and your family also have a connection to Sam Cooke as well. Sam Cooke actually lived in the neighborhood that my aunt lived in. My father and uh, uh, mother went to DuSable High School and, and, and Wendell Phillips, which is where he went to school at. So I'm part of history. I can feel history. I know history. And it's a wonderful thing when you know it. And I think not enough Americans really get a good historical education, not just math and science, but history is very important because you may not ever shoot a rocket, but you will live history every day because everything you did 10 minutes ago becomes history. Great point, Sylvester. So we're going to go a bit deeper into real history shortly, but for now, let's focus on racism. So what have you seen change and what stayed pretty much the same? We used to have an overt racist society. Now we have a very covert racist society, for example. Uh, You walk into the grocery store and you find all the managers and the people in the decision and power positions uh, are white. There's somebody that's hiring people. There's somebody who's making day-to-day decisions about who goes where and how high people go. That has not been quite as, let's let's say, like it was in the 20s and the 30s. It it was out in the open. Now it's more covertly. That's a great point, Sylvester. I was just looking at a 2020 workplace demographic chart by McKinsey that pointed out how white males represent only 35% of the entry-level workers. And that's about right, based on the percentage that this group is of the overall U.S. population. But if you move up one notch to managers, their representation numbers jump up to 44%. Slide up one more notch to directors, and white males now represent 51%. Go up one more to the VP level, it becomes 57%. And so on and so on through the SVP, executive VP, all the way up to the C-level and the CEO where they represent about 85%. Meanwhile, all the other demographics are evaporating as you go through those higher levels. So all the organizations have done a lot of work to increase the diversity numbers. These are only showing up at the bottom of the ladder and they're barely touching the power and authority structure of the these companies. So part of this covert racism has taken the form of a demographically gerrymandered organization where all the diversity is allowed at the bottom, but the upper layers are still off limits. And that is something that's happening in all types of organizations, big and small. It also affects the way that these companies' products and services are marketed. Some companies have recently started using interracial couples in their commercials, and others have been using people of color for a while. But for the most part, there are still quite a few companies out there that have commercials that seem to convey the belief that we live in this white-only society. What's your take on that? How do you think this affects those companies? I think something that white America really doesn't, and, and people who do the branding at corporations don't realize. If I look at a commercial, and I don't see, and this is not just me, it's in the, in the black neighborhood, in the community, in the hood, as they would say. I look at a commercial and I don't see somebody that looks like me. I'm less likely to buy that brand if, if there's another alternative. So you lose money not knowing because you don't have that person at the table in the brand. He's not the brand manager. He's not the assistant brand manager. She's not the assistant. And they have more of an ear to the communities which they live in. 
everybody has an ear to the community. If, if I'm an Asian, I have more uh, connection with the Asian community than, than uh, the, the, say, a white person that lives totally out in a different world and a different perspective. So what kind of questions should the leaders of these organizations ask themselves? How often do you have meetings where African-Americans, Native Americans, Mexican-Americans, Asian-Americans are included in a meeting? If you have a meeting and there's all white guys sitting around a table, that means everybody else's opinions, everybody else's viewpoints are left out. Some of those viewpoints may be very uh, helpful to your corporation and, and it might just float right to your bottom line. If, I, if something in the Native American community could make you money and you don't know that, then you don't get the benefit of that knowledge. The people, if they're not at, in the boardrooms and if they're not at the executive level or the middle management level or the supervisory level, you cannot get the benefit. You cannot from them because they're not there. You can't get opinions from a chair, empty chair. Or if you got all white leadership, you're only going to get white leadership. That's it. That's only, I'm only capable of giving the leadership that I, that my background, I bring something with me. I bring a background with me. Yeah, that makes sense. And yet the behavior that we often see in organizations defies this clear logic. Who wouldn't want to have access to all those perspectives so that we can get and keep all the best people and serve the largest total available market with our goods and services? But instead, organizations often act like we live in a primarily white society with a few other diverse people that we can ignore sprinkled out there. And I think this is really a reflection of our larger topic, which is the story that we tell ourselves about our history and who we are. We aren't really this monolithic white society in America. We're not a monolithic society. Everybody don't look the same way in America. America was to put together to be for many one. It has never reached that goal because even if you go back to the, the very beginning of the country, we said all men are created equal, endowed by the creator with certain inalienable rights. But we had slavery. So we've always been this oil and I call it the oil and water country. We've and we and that and that comes across in your people, African Americans and uh, other minorities love America, but they don't get the love back from America. It's almost like they it, there's a feeling of love and hate uh, that almost uh, permeates minority communities, and it's very understandable because we've been a very hypocritical society all the way, and that shows in your corporate structure. Yeah, and I would imagine in the corporate structure, that feeling of loving the organization but not feeling that love back produces a similar oil and water effect, to use your analogy. Is that a fair statement? Uh, I definitely I definitely think that's a fair point. And, and what happens is you lose that person's inspiration. Okay, I'm good here. I got a paycheck coming, but Bill got promoted before me. I was here before him. I trained him, and now Bill is just sitting in the executive wing, and I'm still in the uh, mid-management wing. That will affect that employee all the way. And then what happens, that employee started looking for a company that will give him a better shake. It's no different than the people who picked cotton in the South coming to the North because there were jobs and there was a better shake in the North. Human beings will migrate to what is right invariably. They will, and they know what's right. And when you don't hire like you should, or then you don't have a, a corporate 
philosophy that makes everybody feel welcome within your organization, your organization becomes stagnant because it only has one way of uh, thinking. It only has one way of innovating. It only has one way of profiting. And as you let new blood come in or new lines of thinking, American Indian is going to have a different perspective than uh, Mexican-American. The Mexican-American is probably going to have a different perspective than the Asian-American. But when all those people sit to the table, your company will then prosper from all of their knowledge. And uh, as good as, as American corporations are right now, they can always benefit from new blood, new thinking. Absolutely. And to a great degree, this lack of seeing the value in other people around us often comes from being fed false history, which brings us back to our bigger original topic. And this false history hurts all of us, doesn't it? I learned long ago, when I studied history, that if you teach a, a, a white child, and you don't teach a black child their history, and if you, if you smother others' history, and don't give real history. You give false history because anything that is other than the truth is revisionist history. America is full of revision and omission of history. You also deprive the white child because there's only one history. So if you tell a lie about that history, for example, we say we all, I'll give you this. I don't have anything against Italian American, but Columbus did not discover America. And if you go deep into history, you, you'll find out that there were Native Americans trading with Africans off the coast of Africa years before Columbus. But we get the story in, in uh, 1492, Columbus uh, you know, sailed the ocean blue. That is revisionist history. It's false history, but that is what we are taught. And, a lot, and once you're taught something, it's hard to erase it. It's very difficult to, to erase racism because it's taught along from infancy to the grave. And that is why we have such a problem in America today in corporate structures and outside of corporate structures. Yeah, I think the same type of false history in the world of business creates some of the challenges that we see in corporations. So a lot of industries have people held up as heroes who paved the way in these industries for these great corporations. And strangely enough, all of them seem to be white until you dig a little bit under the surface. So for example, Vivian Theodore Thomas is someone I learned about not too long ago, an African-American laboratory supervisor who developed the procedure used to treat blue baby syndrome. Now, since Mr. Thomas wasn't a medical doctor, he served behind a Dr. Alfred Blaylock, a white American surgeon who was most noted for what? His work on blue baby syndrome. But it was actually Thomas who developed the procedure. Or more recently, we had a documentary film titled Hidden Figures about three female African-American mathematicians, Mary Jackson, Katherine Johnson, and Dorothy Vaughn. These women were at the very core of our success in the space race. And yet, until recently, if you looked at any of the old Nassau Control Center films or the astronauts or biographies that were in books, 
you would think that getting a person to the moon was totally a white male accomplishment. And of course, this lopsided history gives the impression that our healthcare and space exploration advancements are all thanks to the efforts and ingenuity of only white people. And I'm sure that this is true in a lot of other fields, in fact, probably in all fields. And as a result, corporations that operate in these fields and their leaders are walking around with this false sense of history that fuels their beliefs about other people who are not white. And I think it's important to correct that narrative. So Sylvester, can you share some stories about other black people who've contributed through inventions and or ideas to the world we live in today? If you want to go through people who have invented, I think some of the work done on the electric light bulb came from black people. Washington, D.C. was laid out by a black man. The first open heart surgery was done by a black man. Do you know the gas mask was invented by a black man? The train couples on trains were invented by a black man. A fishing rod was invented by a black man. We got heavyweight champions. We got Olympic champions. We just go on and on as a great people. The only reason that could we not been quarterbacks a long time before we were quarterbacks? Sure we could. Look at who's playing in the, uh, in the upcoming Super Bowl. Sure we could have. If you let us in the door, they said that black people shouldn't fly airplanes in World War II. Look up the, uh, uh, I think of the 32nd Pursuit Squad in World War II. They were uh, supposed to escort heavy bombers. They never lost one heavy bomber that they escorted. George Washington Carver, African-American, invented peanut butter. And guess what? Every time you put a potato chip to your mouth, there was a gentleman, uh, his last name was Crump. He invented potato chip. So by my count, you just covered lighting, architecture, healthcare, protective equipment, mass transportation, sports, the military, and food production. And I'm sure we could have covered contributions to all the other remaining areas of public and private industry if we just had more time. And I'm sure we can create an equally long list for people of other nationalities and ethnicities. This is all the stuff that most people in America and Western Europe don't learn as part of history. And the same is true when we learn about other countries. The focus is on the evolution and development of countries populated and led by Europeans, and later the migration of Europeans to the Americas. I would wager that most of us were taught very little about non-white countries like Africa and what these countries contribute to the world. To most people, it would seem that Africa is just this little place with lots of poor black people and exotic animals. But it's much, much more than that, isn't it? Africa is, is many times bigger than the United States. And it many times is rich in some minerals found in Africa and be found nowhere else in the world. Diamonds come out of Africa. Gold is in Africa, but they have been exploited. Instead of us having a relationship that was equal to people and everybody gets some benefit out of it, we pile it on one side of the table. Great points. So, Sylvester, our listeners are ERG and BRG community leaders. And one of the things that I think that they can do is to use opportunities like National History Days or Months to educate their colleagues and their organizations. To prepare to do this, are there any resources that you recommend? I think every group has books written about that group and the people who have stood out within that group. What 
the person that doesn't have maybe a history of what African Americans have contributed or Mexican Americans go to the local library or look it up. We got we are on something that can give you all the knowledge in the world. You look up African American on this computer and it will give you more than you ever want to sit and try to take in. Look up what Asian Americans have contributed. Yes, and of course there are your books, which I think present an in-depth look at history through the eyes of an African American family. So where can our listeners go to get your books and or get in touch with you directly? You can get my book at Boyd Books dot net boyd b-o-y-d book b-o-o-k-s dot net and all the information my bio is on there the radio interviews on i've done radio interviews from one end of the world to the other around the world and some of my background businessman teacher actor i've done quite a few different things and sometimes i look back and i say did i do that and what how did i do it but just going forward and enjoying life because life is to be enjoyed. Absolutely. Sylvester, thank you for taking the time to join us today. Thanks for having me. So let me take a moment now to share what I've gleaned out of my discussion with Sylvester. One, what we consider the history of our country, of our industries or companies, is often a skewed picture that conceals the truth about the contributions made by many of the societies and groups around us. Two, that skewed history contributes to a skewed perception about who has the ability to be a leader and contribute to our organizations, who we believe has what it takes to make a difference based on what our history tells us about their past. Three, organizations can clearly benefit by having a diversity of perspectives within their leadership and decision-making ranks, which goes missing when diversity exists only at the bottom of the ranks of the company due to these misperceptions. Four, furthermore, as the diversity of the workforce increases, no organization can hope to have a high percentage of people that are engaged if they continue to ignore and pass over the growing ranks of underrepresented people due to misperceptions about what they're capable of doing based on misunderstandings of their past. Five, unfortunately, our lack of true historical context for the abilities of others is what prevents us from fully leveraging everything that everyone has to offer, and that's a loss for the organization and for all of us. Six, clearly no one group of people or country has built our modern wonders of industry. Just a quick look at African-American contributions that Sylvester talked about shows us that African-Americans have done a lot more than most people realize. An examination of Native American, Mexican, Asian, Pacific Islander, and all the other histories that are out there would probably add more to that emerging picture of a world that was not built by the sole ingenuity of one group of people. Seven, our organizations and communities can all benefit by learning more about the true history of the world without political overtones that favor one group or country over another. The technical term for false history is historical negationism. Historical negationism should not be confused with revisionist or revised history. Revisionist history or revising history refers to rewriting of history based on new evidence of facts and fairly reasoned academic interpretations of history. 
Historical negation, on the other hand, is the result of unproven stories, omission of facts, or other misleading actions used to tell fake history. Sometimes this happens due to ignorance or misinterpretation of data when people are translating records, but other times that's done on purpose by countries or groups of people who want to present a more favorable picture of themselves and a less favorable picture of others. Either way, historical negation or false history can be so harmful that in some countries, such as Germany, the practice is considered illegal. In other countries, historical negation has not been made illegal or criminalized because there are concerns about protecting free speech. But still, historical negation is harmful. While there are many books full of examples of historical negation, such as people who deny the Holocaust, the practice is not limited to these well-known big cases. In fact, as we've seen from our brief chat with Sylvester, we've done quite a bit of erasing in terms of the accomplishments of many underrepresented people. And we just started to scratch the surface in that brief discussion with Sylvester. The African-American novelist, playwright, essayist, and poet, and activist James Baldwin once said, people are trapped in history and history is trapped in them. What Baldwin is highlighting here is that we tend to learn from what we believe is history and then we just kind of repeat these things as we believe that they've already happened. The consequences of historical negationism are bad for everyone because they tend to trap us in this cycle of reliving and building on the false narrative based on false beliefs. That's probably why so many have imaginatively depicted its terrible effects on society in some of the greatest works of fiction, such as 1984 by George Orwell. So what can you do as an ERG, BRG leader or member? My advice is become a student of your community's history and then use opportunities such as Black History Month or Women's History Month or other dates and months like this to not just stage feel-good cultural celebrations, but use them as an opportunity to educate others. Set that record straight on the contributions that have been made by your community to the country, to the industry, to the world, to your company. This is a powerful way to begin the process of negating negation in your organization and community. As the gospel writer John wrote, quoting Jesus, and I paraphrase, Knowing the truth shall set you free. In this case, it will set your company free from the barriers that keep it from the opportunity to grow its market and engage a larger segment of talent. It will also free your community members from careers that are restrained by false and limiting narratives and beliefs. And in the end, with that truth, we all win. Thank you for tuning in to ERG Power Talk. If you enjoyed and got value out of this program, please like us and leave a favorable review at your podcast provider's site. Also, invite others to listen to the show. By the way, contact me if you're looking for an ERG Symposium keynote or a leader for your strategy workshop, new chair onboarding, and or ERG bootcamp. I can run these for you either in person or in a virtual setting. Also, for more great ideas and tips for your ERGs, get my book, Supercharge Your ERGs, 18 Tips to Power Up Your ERG Strategy on Amazon.com. I'm Joe Santana, and thanks again for tuning in.